Well, the, the topic for this session um, is, is union with Christ. Uh, there, there's a, there's a uh, semi-famous uh, book by uh, a Dutch theologian, Klaus Skilder. And I, as I, rec- I, I don't think this is quite the title, but as I first understood the title, it, it, it was Hamel. What is that? Which is, um, I think it's what is the Hamel. Well, what is heaven? And I, but when I first, somebody first told me the title, you know, Hamel, what is that? I always thought that's such a great title. So I, I thought union, you know, what is that? Uh, what, what do we mean when we talk about union with Christ? Uh, that's a term that gets thrown around. In fact, it's a term that, uh, it's an expression that's being used more and more in, in our time. In fact, some people are saying that uh, if you want to be really reformed, on, uh, then you have to understand that, that, uh, that the doctrine, the, the, the teaching of union with Christ is the central truth, they say. All you really have to know is union with Christ, and then you can just work out from that truth everything else. Uh, I don't think that's true. I doubt that's true. Our confessions don't talk that way. Our catechisms don't talk that way. And and most of our theologians haven't talked that way in the history of our churches. But, it, but all that being said, it is a very important truth in the Word of God that we need to understand, and it's closely related to what I was talking about last time uh, when we were talking about sacraments and, and faith. So when we talk about union with Christ, what do we mean? Well, uh, the best definition I've ever seen is, is from a, another uh, old Dutch theologian, Louis Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, who defines union with Christ as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation, that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people. What do, what do we mean when we talk about union? We, we're really talking about a connection between one person or a group of persons and another person, a connection. Uh, the, the, our Latin uh, our older theologians used to write in Latin, and sometimes they talk about the winculum. The, uh, it's a vine or a chain or a connection or a bond between one person and another. Between, uh, between Christ and us, sometimes they say the Holy Spirit, Calvin says, is the, the winculum, the, the bond, the connection between one and another. And I was uh, searching for some way to, to try to illustrate this, and two things came to mind because I've been watching, one of them because I've been watching old war movies, and uh, Pearl Harbor keeps coming up in a couple of these uh, you know, World War II movies. And, you know, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, uh, the, the initial assault uh, was at 7.43 a.m. on December 7, 1941. And, and, when, and at 7.43 a.m., when those fighter planes uh, began, began dropping uh, bombs at Pearl Harbor, it wasn't just Hawaii, and it wasn't just Pearl Harbor, and it wasn't just the naval installation there that was attacked. I mean, if you ever thought about that, uh, the fact that, you know, something happened that far away, 
That's a long ways. It's quite a ways from where I live, and it's even farther, I guess, from where you are here. Well, what does that have to do with us? What about, uh, what about uh, when World Trade Center number one was attacked at 8.45 a.m. on September 11, 2001? What, what does that have to do with us? When, when you were a child uh, on, a, on the playground, did you ever see uh, two kids having a fight? If you were in Omaha, Nebraska in 1967, there's a good chance that I was one of those kids that you were watching out on the playground. And that wasn't my choice, usually. I was the little guy. I couldn't get away. I had short legs, couldn't run. If you're not sure how that works, ask Bob. He, he can... <laughs> He can demonstrate for you. He just keeps going and going and nothing ever happens. But it's amusing, though. Keeps us awake in faculty meetings. If two kids are having a fight on the, on the playground, what does that have to do with you? Well, it's because we're federally connected. We are legally connected. We were connected legally and federally to the state of Hawaii so that when Hawaii was, was bombed on December 7, 1941, and when the World Trade Center was attacked on 9-11, we were all attacked because we're connected. To attack New York City and to attack the Pentagon and to attempt to attack the Congress or the, the White House, whatever that, that other flight was, was uh, meant to do, that was an attack on every one of us. That's, uh, that's because we are part of a union. We used to say in, in times past, th we used to speak of these United States. Typically now people simply say the United States. But we used to say these United States. It was a way of, of saying we are 50 sovereign states that are united together in a union. And so what you do to one of them, you do to all of them. So what's what happens to them happened to us. And that's why we got upset, and that's why we went to war, because it was an attack on the whole country. It wasn't just an attack on Hawaii. We didn't simply say, well, that's too bad for those Hawaiians. I hope everything goes okay, and we'll write them a check, and, and you know, in a few years they'll rebuild, and it won't be so bad. We were united. Well, we're united to Christ. What happened to Jesus and what was done by Jesus for us and what was done to Jesus for us was done to us and for us. We are so closely connected to Jesus that what is true of him is true of us. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that that we are seated with God in the heavenlies. Have you, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? And why, do they, why does he put it that way? Why does he say those sorts of things? He puts it that way and he says those sorts of things because, first of all, they're true, which is always a good thing. But secondly, it's because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is ascended, bodily ascended. By his deity, he's everywhere. He's here, present now with us. 
but, by, but bodily in his humanity, his true humanity, in which he is like us in every respect, Scripture says, except for sin, but like us in every respect in his true humanity, he is at the right hand of the Father. But because we are connected by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, who hovered over the face of the deep and who hovered over the, the Virgin Mary and whom the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter says is hovering over the church now. Read 1 Peter 4. We are connected by that same Holy Spirit to the ascended Lord Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father and who is ruling the nations, the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the sovereign Lord and he is the Messiah and he is ruling the nations. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies about one uh, a son of David, David's greater son, the greater than David, the one to whom the one about whom David said, My Lord, Jesus makes that argument, points that out in the Gospel of Matthew. How can David say, if, David, if it's David's son, how can David say, My Lord? Quoting Psalm 110. Yahweh says to Adoni, which is Hebrew for my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus is that Adoni. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But we are united to him. You know, sometimes, and we, we talked about this in, the last, in my last session a little bit, that, you know, Reformed people, Presbyterian people, are sometimes uh, called cold. And, and sometimes that might be true practically. It might be true practically. But sometimes we're called cold and dead because we don't match up to people's expectations. If being warm and alive means doing some of the things that we're supposed to, that some of evangelicalism is doing, then I guess I'd rather be cold and dead than warm and alive. I won't bark for anybody. I mean, for fun maybe, but not in church. But people were doing that in church a few years ago, and that was, that was all the rage. And that was the definition some folks were using for warm and alive. Sometimes people say, you, you don't have any, any uh, real view of and, and use for the Holy Spirit. And, and my response is, you don't understand us at all. What do you mean we don't have any view of or use for the Holy Spirit? We say the Holy Spirit made us alive while we were dead in sins and trespasses. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. Dead in sins and trespasses. It, you know, the same person who says, well, you don't have much use for or view of or interest in the Holy Spirit, he, he doesn't think he's very sinful. He thinks he's wounded. I don't know if you know the Black Knight from Monty Python. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. Come back. A lot of Ickles think that they're simply wounded, that they're ill. But we Calvinists, starting with the Apostle Paul, know that we're dead in sins and trespasses. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person. Now, you know, when people die, it's very antiseptic and they're, they're swept away and you, 
you don't get to see them. They, they disappear, and sometimes they don't even have them at memorial services anymore. And It might be quite possible that you've never seen a dead person, but I have. And, uh, one of the highlights of my high school education was going to the basement of the dental college. It was, I had to persevere through a whole semester of physiology because the payoff at the end was we got to go to the basement of the dental school and see cadavers. And I put up with all the pigs, fetuses, and, and the, you know, the sweaty wax statues and, and watching all of these gory films, all for the privilege of seeing cadavers. High school wasn't very interesting, but when I heard that you could go see a cadaver and get credit for it, I just thought that was just too much to resist. Now that's interesting. And so we went down to the basement of the dental college, and here's a metal tank, and here are these fellows that they had scooped up from some alley, I think, in Chicago. And we got to look at them. It was fascinating. Boy, it's amazing what people do to themselves. But I won't go into that. The reason we were able to look at these fellows, and, and, and I've held a man's heart in my hands, it's thick. It's, it's really remarkable. I was, I was able to hold a man's heart in my hands, and some of you, I know at least one of you in this place has done that while people were alive. I was able to do that in that case because they were dead. There's no life. There was no life principle. There was no, nothing going on in that person. They weren't there. It was just a corpse. Now, it's a body, and it's worthy of respect, and I don't mean any disrespect, but there was no one home. That's what Paul says we are by nature, dead in sins and trespasses. And the only way that we can be alive is if the same Holy Spirit who, who hovered over the face of the deep and the, uh, the, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses the image of a bird, the wings fluttering over the face of the deep, almost in a, like a, a sort of a, I, I think of it as sort of a birthing picture. The, the only way for us to come alive is if God the Spirit sovereignly operates through the preaching of His holy gospel and invades our hearts and our minds and, our, li- and our, our wills and makes what was dead alive so that we're able to, to think the way that God would have us to think and, and to, to love the things that God would have us to love and to choose the things that God would have us to choose apart from the sovereign, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the making alive work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me, the Scriptures use the metaphor of resurrection. Only dead people get resurrected. Someone comes to me and says, you don't have much of a, of a view of the Holy Spirit. And I say, you don't understand us at all. I was dead in sins and trespasses. And God the Holy Spirit came and made me alive. And not only did He make me alive, He united me to Christ through faith that He worked through the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching. And he calls it foolishness because it is. It's some guy in a suit standing up and telling you a story about 
some rabbi who was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day, and now is supposed to be ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's just crazy. The crazy thing is it's true. But you'll never believe it or understand it or, or have confidence in it or trust it or trust Him who was raised for you until God the Spirit gives you eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is soft instead of a heart that is stony, a mind that is able to understand just a little, and a will that is not at war with God, at least not completely. And that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And then He connects us, right? He gives us faith, and that faith connects us to Christ, and that faith is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And He abides with us, and He lives with us, and, and we are connected to Him so that there is a profound mystery at the heart of our faith. Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus, he says, you don't know where the wind is coming from, you don't know where it goes. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. People say, well, you, you have, you, you Reformed people, you Presbyterians, your faith is, it's all in your head. I have a heart religion. And again, I say, I'm sorry, but you, you haven't uh, understood us at all. I, I have, uh, there, uh, I've been reading some literature about this, uh, these movements, the emergent church and the emerging church, and one of the things that these folks, uh, one of the things for which these folks are looking is a sense of mystery and transcendence. And I understand that. Now, I, I think walking around in, in labyrinths and sitting in small circles and doing some of the things that they're doing probably are not the places you want to find mystery, but, but there is a profound mystery at the heart of our faith. Well, lots of them. God is one God in three persons. I can tell you the truth, and I, I can explain a little bit how we talk about that and what the Scriptures say, but I can't really tell you how that is. God the Son became incarnate, as Dr. Godfrey said. There was when he was not, when he did not have humanity, and then there was a moment in which he had humanity, when he took up residence. Now, now listen to me. In the womb of a woman, how human is our Savior? He had an umbilical cord. I'm sorry for bombarding you with all these biological uh, images and, and metaphors and similes. I'm, I'm not a physician, and as, a, as actually Bob's, I think, eldest son, many, many years said of him, uh, that he's not the kind of doctor who can do anybody any good. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those, so I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. But, but, but Scripture does use these kinds of metaphors and images and, and similes. And that God the Son was in the womb of the Virgin. You know, the early church uh, used to speak of, of Mary as Theotokos, they call her the God-bearer. I've had people remonstrate with me for saying that. And my response to them is to say, read the definition of Chalcedon. Read the early creeds. Read the early church. And read our theologians. We say that woman was. We don't pray to her. We don't invoke her. She couldn't hear us if we did. 
And she would, be dis, she would be very displeased, and she will be, to find out that people prayed to her. She'll, I know for a fact, she will say, well, what on earth are you doing talking to me? That's crazy. Why didn't you talk to my son? He's the mediator. He's the God-man. He's the only high priest between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's just stupid talking to me. I'm just a woman. But she is blessed her name is blessed, and, and we, we, well, not to shy away from saying the Blessed Virgin Mary, because she carried in her womb the God-man. She held the man, the God-man, Jesus, in her arms, and she fed him at her breast. He had an umbilical cord. That's how human he is. He remains, and we are connected to that truly human Savior, by the Holy Spirit who made us alive, who's given us faith, and in whom we live our life. So this idea of union with Christ is an essential doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. It's a spiritual doctrine. It's even a mystical doctrine. You, you, my, my emerging friends say that they want mystery, and I say, as we were saying before, come to the Lord's table. We were talking at the break. Someone said, and it's a good question. I can't answer it, but it's a good question. They said, well, how does this work, this, this feeding on Christ at the table? I can't tell you. I don't know. I know what's true. I know what the Word of God says. I know what we confess as churches. I can't tell you how it happens. It's a mystery faith now. It's a mystery. There you go. He wants a mystery. It's at the communion table. Don't be asking impertinent questions now. You want mystery? The, 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 let me, I'll give you a mystery. We're united to Jesus Christ by God the Spirit. That's mystery. How did it happen? I don't know. Where did the Spirit come from? I don't know. How is it that one moment I was dead in sins and trespasses? I remember that state. Maybe you were raised, if you were blessed, you were raised in a covenant household and you've always believed. That's fine. Don't ever feel guilty about that. Don't ever let anybody feel, make you feel guilty about being a covenant child. You give thanks to God. You get on your knees and give thanks to God you were raised in a... In a covenant household. You didn't have to live through darkness and blindness and, and the bitterness of unbelief. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. But I remember. And then, one day, I could see. My favorite guy, maybe, in all of Scripture is that man who was born blind, John 9, whose sin this guy or his parents and Jesus said you missed the point and they came and said how did you, what, what happened to you well I was blind and then I could see how, how did it happen well he put mud in my eyes and then I could see he didn't know well who is this guy he says I, I don't know all I can tell you is the truth by the way you want to know what Witnessing to your friends and family and relatives and co-workers is? That's it right there. You don't have to explain the doctrine of the Trinity. You should know it. 
You're Christians, but you don't have to explain it. All you have to do is say, you know what? This is, the, this is the truth. This is what I know to be the truth. Deal with it. You just have to tell him the truth. His parents wouldn't tell the truth. Why? Because they were afraid of what people would think and they'd get thrown out of the synagogue. But that man, he knew the truth. And, and, and finally he says, well, you people are asking so many questions. What, do you want to become his followers too? That's a great question. And of course, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. How did that man become sighted who was born blind? God the Holy Spirit hovered over him and made him who was dead. In the book of Ezekiel, what does God say? Son of man, say to these bones, live! And every Sabbath, your minister stands in this pulpit and he says to dead bones, live. And God the Holy Spirit empowers that gospel word. It's the same. You want to know how powerful that word is? It's as powerful as when God said, let there be. Because you, apart from the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that unites you to Christ and makes you alive with Christ, raises you with Christ, connects you to Christ, gives you the life of Christ, so there's no longer I who lives, but as Paul says in Galatians 2, but Christ who lives in me, that happened uh, when the minister preached the gospel and God the Holy Spirit empowered that word and used it and made you alive. You might not even know when that was. But that's how it happened. And it's just as powerful. We don't have a view of the Holy Spirit. We're not interested in the Holy Spirit. We don't have mystery. Well, it's true we don't have tenebras services. It's true that we don't do a lot of things that people think are interesting. But it just happens to be that we think the gospel is interesting. Our view of, uh, of this view of, of union with Christ is essential to our faith. It's a biblical doctrine. It's what we confess. It's a spiritual doctrine. It's a mystical doctrine. Jesus uses uh, uh, lots of different images. Scripture uses a number of images. Jesus speaks about vine and branches. Paul speaks about husbands and wives. Scripture uses the image of foundations and buildings. Paul uses the image of head and members. These are all different ways of talking about union with Christ. We are as united to Christ by the Holy Spirit as the head is united to the rest of the body. We are as united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as the vine is connected to the branches. We are as united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as the husband is united to the wife. We are one flesh. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that we are so united to Christ that the world who still hates Jesus and if he were here today, you know you might think if he were here today, if only Jesus were here today people would believe. If only they could see him they would believe. If only they could hear his voice they would believe. 
I, I had a woman tell me once, I wish I'd been there when they parted the Red Sea. Then I would really know. And of course, I, I, I want to say, you want to see the Red Sea? Just ask your pastor when the next baptism is. That's your Red Sea right there. I got your Red Sea. We are so united to Christ, the Apostle Paul says, that they would do, they do to us what they can't do to Jesus. If Jesus were here right now, right, in Ponte Vedra or in Jacksonville, I guarantee you what would happen. We'd crucify him all over again. Because that's what we are by nature. We hate God by nature. We're not just not nice people. We're not just people who sometimes let dandelions go in their front yard. We're really bad. We're dark. I know we have decent homes and decent, decently, decent looking outward lives, but I know what goes on behind those doors because I've been in those homes. I'm in those homes. And I've sat in marriage counseling. And I know what we say to each other. And apart from the powerful, gracious, sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ, we're without hope. We're lost. And, and even if Jesus were here, if God the Spirit didn't make us alive, we'd crucify Him all over again. It's not for lack of evidence. It's for want of the powerful, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You want to see change in your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your relatives? You pray for the grace of God in Christ that God the Holy Spirit would sweep into their hearts and lives and make them alive who are dead in sins and trespasses. The Apostle Paul uses uh, some interesting language in Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus uh, and are faithful, and, he, and then he uses this interesting phrase that I want to talk about for the next few minutes, in Christ Jesus. If you go down to verse 3 of Ephesians 1, blessed be, he says, Blessed be God the Father, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, now listen, listen to this expression, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him. Now, who is the him? That's a relative pronoun, and the, the antecedent for that pronoun is Christ. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Just a little bit from verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. You see how the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, three or four times in different ways, keeps coming back to that in Christ. God loved you, His people, if you are one of His people, if, if you've trusted Him or perhaps you will trust Him. 
If you've not yet trusted Him, it's because He loved His people in Christ from all eternity. But you don't come into possession of the benefit of that love, that electing, predestinating, eternal love, until and unless you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The union we have with Christ, or our union with Christ and, and our in Christ state, is rooted in eternity, in God's electing love, but it comes to effect in time. And that's why it's so crucial that you get, that we all get the doctrine of justification so that you listen to what Dr. Uh, Horton said last night and you listen to what Dr. Sproul said last night and you listen to what Dr. Godfrey said this morning. Yes, even Dr. Godfrey. Because they were telling you the truth. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. He obeyed for sinners. It's the four. The difference, you want to know the difference between the Protestant church and the medieval and Roman churches? The operative preposition in the medieval church and in the Roman church is in. God in us. The operative preposition in the Protestant church is for. Christ for us. But we don't stop there. That's the beautiful thing. There is, Paul says now, no condemnation right, for those who are in Christ Jesus through faith. In Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So that the first way we come into possession of this union with Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, which we define in the Westminster Confession as receiving and resting in Christ and His finished work. That's it. That's what we mean by faith. It's receiving and resting in Christ. That's what we mean when we say sola fide. There's, no, there's nothing plus. It's not faith plus. It's not Christ plus. It's just faith alone in Christ alone. And then flowing out of that, flowing out of that union with Christ that we apprehend, of which we take hold, which is effected when we trust in Christ, which is grounded in God's eternal love for us in Christ, by which He loved us, not for anything in us, but just because He loved us, because He loved us, and for no other reason. Right? We take possession of that by faith. And that faith is a gift of God that comes out of His grace and, and mercy to us. And flowing out of that then is faith, and then flowing out of that faith is what we call sanctification or growing in godliness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, notice that phrase, that's a prepositional phrase, that's a locative phrase, we are located somewhere. Where are we located? Well, we're in Ponte Vedra, yes. But all of us who believe in Jesus are in Christ. I know, uh, I don't think, it, I, I don't know this part of the country very well, but, and I, my geography is terrible. I, I actually never had, I, I missed geography by changing schools. 
But, and I have a feeling Atlanta is not too terribly far from here. And you know there's a famous ministry there, In Touch Ministries. It's great to be in touch, but I think it's better to be in Christ. I'd like to see someone have an In Christ ministry. Because that's what we need to be, is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're not in Christ, you're out of Christ. And if you're out of Christ, you're in a lot of trouble. I'm telling you the truth right now. God's not pleased with you if you're not in Christ. And the only way you can be in Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone. But if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. Ephesians 2.10, uh, Scripture says, the Apostle Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that phrase, created in Christ Jesus. Do you ever think about that? You have been created by the sovereign, powerful work of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. And when Paul, whenever Paul says in Christ, he's talking about what we call union with God. Christ. We've been united to Christ. We've been recreated in Christ. We've been created in Christ. We don't have a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Sure we do. We have Paul's doctrine. It's not Benny Hinn's doctrine. But, it, but I think the Apostle Paul will do. Thank you very much. Romans 6.4. Benny Hinn does have some interesting suits. He probably dresses better and lives better than the Apostle Paul did. But, but, but the Apostle Paul understands the gospel, and, and that's a good thing. That's, you put that on that side of the ledger. <laughs> Romans 6, 4, we were buried with him. That's, the, by the way, the official pronunciation, and buried. Uh, we were buried with him, therefore, uh, by baptism. Not that baptism did it, but baptism is a picture, a sign, and a seal, like we said earlier in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How, how essential, how important is this doctrine? John Calvin says in, in, in his Institutes, book 3, right in the opening section, he says, how do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? First, Calvin says, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. You've got to be in Christ in order to benefit from Christ. And you're only in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. When you come to know the greatness of your sin and misery, when God graciously and sovereignly uses the law of God to teach you how wretched and lost and miserable and needy you are, when you finally understand that, that's a grace, that's a gift. Because now you know your true condition. Now you know what you need. You need a Savior. And the good news is, there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And He loves His people. He accomplished their redemption. And, and, and 
He empowers us to live the Christian life by grace, not by works. We do works, but we do them by grace. So that the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved ones, this is not the purpose-driven life. This isn't, by the way, it's not 400, it's 613 commandments, the rabbis counted. 613 commandments. This isn't the commandment-driven life. This is the gospel-driven life. This is a man, this is the Apostle Paul who knew what he was. He knew what it was like to try to please God by being good. He knew what it was like to try to present himself to God on the basis of his lineage, on the basis of his knowledge of the Torah. You know, he had memorized the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And he realized that it was impossible. God showed him it was impossible. God knocked him down to the ground and put him in a, in a cell and covered his eyes and showed him, Saul of Tarsus, you can't do it. Jesus, this rabbi whose people you are persecuting, he did it for you. God had to break him and show him that everything he had done was dung. It was as worthless as dung. That's the word the Apostle Paul uses. It's not rubbish. It's dung. It's filthy. It's worthless. It's of no value to God relative to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul, this is a man who is seized with the gospel of good news that Christ was for me and that Christ loves me and that I'm united to him by the Holy Spirit so that I am so identified with him that I have been crucified with Christ so that what happened to Jesus happened to me. And the good news is because I've been crucified with Christ, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to what I used to be. I'm dead to all the things I used to think were important. In fact, I'm dead to what people think of me. The only thing I care about is what Jesus says. And Jesus says, righteous, child, friend, brother. That's union. You can only have union with people with whom you are in right relation. Don't let anyone come and tell you that somehow you need to set against the biblical doctrine of union, the biblical doctrine of justification. The only way for you to be united to Christ and to be united with God is to be right with God by being in Christ by faith. We, we have legal relations and personal union all the time. If I violate my marriage covenant, I'm no longer right with my wife, and we're not united. But because we are in a right 
legal relationship, we are in a right and intimate and personal right, union. The same thing is true of our Christian faith. God the Holy Spirit has made you alive with Christ who were dead in sins and trespasses. But he did it by working faith in your hearts so that you trust in Jesus and through that he connects you to him and you live out of that day by day, moment by moment, week by week. And it's that union, by the way, that our confessions and the word of God says is strengthened as you come to the table and as you witness baptism. You see how it all hangs together? God is good and he's merciful. Let's give thanks for his grace in uniting us to Christ. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning uh, for the grace that we 